0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Daniela Luzi-Tudor is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. Daniela, originally from Romania, came to the U.S. with her family to Seattle in 1998. Daniela is the co-founder and CEO of We Connect Health Management, which was founded in 2014 to help support those in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. This cause is near and dear to Daniela and her co-founder, who have both previously struggled with addiction themselves. Daniela has received numerous awards, including being a 40 Under 40 honoree. She sits on several boards and is changing lives every single day with her dedication to using technology to connect people. Welcome, Daniela.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm super psyched. Um, interestingly, as I was reading the intro, I was thinking maybe we re-say that because we were saying who have previously struggled, although I know it's an everyday struggle, right?
1: I wouldn't say it's a struggle now, um, but it is a lifelong, continuous thing that you have to take treatment for. So I always compare it to diabetes, you have to take your insulin, so with recovery, Every single day you have to take your treatment, which can be very different from people. It can be anywhere from meditation to yoga to practicing something like 12 steps or therapy or medically assisted treatment. So yeah. uh, depending on what works for you. So it is an everyday maintenance yeah. is what I would say. Um,
0: yeah. I'm excited to get into yes. it. I just was thinking <laughs> it as I was reading that. Um, but first, we're going to nail you down with some rapid fire. You ready? All right. Okay. What is the favorite language outside of English since you Ooh. speak five, which is unbelievable?
1: I would say Romanian because that is my native language and I also am very proud that it's a Romance language despite being in Eastern Europe, Mm -hmm. so I feel like it's unique. (laughs) Nice.
0: And um, so speaking of Romanian, what's your favorite Romanian dish?
1: Sarmale, which is uh, cabbage rolls with meat inside them.
0: Oh, I think I've had that.
1: It's so, they're so good. Do you know how to make them? I do know how to make them, but of course, not as good as my mom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Invite me over. Yes, anytime. I want to eat, I want to eat it. Um, Okay, best word to describe your leadership style.
1: Ooh, I would say uh, servant So servant leadership.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, Okay, so since you're a badass DJ, I'm sure you're a music (laughs) aficionado, but what was your first concert?
1: My first concert? Oh my gosh, I do not even remember. I know it was like in early high school, and who was that guy that did Pimp Your Car or whatever (laughs) show? Oh, um, (laughs) I don't know. We have to look it up and okay, come back to this. Okay, whoever that rapper was, I think I went to Puyallup Fair. Oh, And that's where I saw him, and I got a picture with him, but I can't even think of his name we'll, right We'll look now. it
0: up. It's going to drive you crazy now.
1: But I DJ electronic music, just to yeah. clarify. <laughs> yeah. I do love underground hip-hop, though. Love. Love underground hip-hop.
0: Yeah, so do I. Um, okay, what is the quality that you most value in a friend?
1: Hmm. I would say... Um compassionate honesty that's like the best quality that's made my best friend and i like we, she's my sister and we care so much about each other's success that we're always really honest with each other because we care and we trust that it's for the better good for both of us so mm-hmm. i would say that's what it is
0: coming at you from a place of trust yes and, and, and love i love yep. that. um what do you like most about yourself
1: oh um that i'm adaptable I like that I'm adaptable to any situation and I can bounce back from anything.
0: Yeah. Okay, final question. What are you currently reading?
1: I'm reading You're a Badass at Making Money.
0: Oh. (laughs) So we got to it a little bit that you grew up um, at an early, early age um, in Romania. What was that like? Do you remember it?
1: I do um, because it was such a tumultuous time. So it was during communism and I was there for the revolution when Ceausescu got uh, murdered. And my parents, my dad specifically, knew things weren't going to get better. So, I mean, we would have to stand in line at 4 a.m. for, like, food. And my mom, when she was pregnant with me, they had Sundays. It was called Patriotic Day, which means you worked for free. So there were several times where she was, like, super pregnant with me, she said. And, like, she would have to find a way to, like, leave work early. She wasn't feeling well. Um, but my actual family and the environment I was raised in was amazing. It was me and my parents and my grandparents. All four of them are very inspirational And you lived
0: together. All of you lived together? Yes,
1: in a house that was, like, uh, basically two little homes but strung together by a hallway. Um, and we had like a little garden and I was raised by really incredible people. But the actual environment in Romania at the time was very tumultuous. You couldn't say anything bad about the government. And I was very social at a very early age. So sometimes I would sneak out and like have conversations with our adult neighbors while my parents are planning on how to leave the country. And they were like, please do not stop like jumping over the fence and doing this because you're going to get us in trouble. you going to get us in
0: trouble. <laughs> so you were an only child.
1: I am, yes. Because we moved 17 times before the age of 11 in different cities. So my Did you parents... say 17? Yes. So my parents never had time to have another kid.
0: Wow. Okay. How did your parents meet each other?
1: So it's a cute story. They met at work. Uh, they were both engineers at the time. My mom an like electrical, or electrical. E- electrical engineer and my dad a mechanical and naval engineer at the time and they worked in the same factory. My mom is two years younger than my dad and she started working at that particular factory. My dad was in a whole different department. But she told me that she heard about a young single guy that had curly hair, and she was like, "I'm sold." And they actually—where
0: would you get your straight hair? You got your mom's <laughs> my, hair?
1: No, I straighten it. My straightened my hair it? used to be very curly actually, oh. but now it's sort of flattened and out a little see, bit. You see like
0: little girl pictures of you.
1: And yeah, so they met and they actually got engaged very quickly. Mm-hmm. So and what got was your, married. And
0: so when how old were you when you left?
1: So I was five years old. My dad, after the revolution, actually by foot went to Germany, asked for political asylum, and then six months later brought my mom and I over. And we were living in separate immigrant asylums for a while because we came at a different time and they wanted to keep track of everybody. There was a lot of really negative propaganda against Romanians at the time in Germany. Do
0: you have any memories of actually leaving?
1: Uh, I do. I I definitely have memories about it. Um, And it was just... I mean, my parents were very honest with me every step of the way of like what was going on in our lives. And they always treated me like an adult. So I feel like I have a lot of memories from that just because there was a lot of communication between us and, and what was going on.
0: Yeah. Okay. So 17 places. So from there, you say Germany. Where in Germany?
1: So Germany, we lived in Fall, Stuttgart, a Bavarian town called Batolz, München. München um,
0: I love, are you talking about Munich? Of... I love yes. Munich. I oh, love. <laughs> yeah. I went yes. there for like two days and ended up extending it.
1: It's a great, great place. And in Bavaria, my mom got a job as an assistant and cook and everything for an extremely wealthy family. And so I had all kinds of different living experiences in Germany, from immigrant asylum to living in like a hundred-room mansion. And it was very crazy.
0: We, when are you writing your book?
1: <laughs> Someday in the future. <laughs> Not today. <laughs>
0: It's, it's, it's a rich story so far and we're only at like sentence number two. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So do you remember like if, if somebody had asked you what you were kind of inspired by as a child, like 10, 11 years old, like what were you fueled by?
1: I was just fueled by, I mean, definitely academics, like I always read a lot of books, I was really interested in um, making an impact, I always wanted to help people because I got treated very differently in every country for being an immigrant, until I would subsequently like lose my accent. I just felt that nobody should be treated that way. So I always knew that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know in what capacity. I considered a lot of different careers, but what stuck with me is when my dad introduced me to who Richard Branson was at an early age, and I was really inspired by the fact that he's made an impact in multiple industries. And then in college, I started my entrepreneurial journey um, through a couple different things.
0: So. Yeah. And so... Um Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, definitely what you're doing right now is super cool because it's business and helping people. So you talked about being kind of academically fueled. Was that coming from your parents or that came from within?
1: I think it was more that I was always fueled to try my hardest and be the best at things and make an impact. And that's also in part fueled because I knew that my parents made a ton of sacrifices and it was all in the name of giving me a better life. So, and that's actually what also fueled me to try um, treatment when I had to go for my addiction. It wasn't so much like for my own life, but it was like, I need to try everything for the sacrifices that they made. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a big of that was a big part of what fueled me uh, in the early stages of life. And then as I became more of my own person, I know that that can be a byproduct of making them proud, but my identity is not tied to that, which I think is really important for anybody to to recognize and grow into.
0: Yeah. And so um, why did your parents leave Germany and go to Portugal?
1: So we were told by the German government, despite like the relationships my mom's bosses had, that They could indefinitely renew our visas, but they would never make us citizens. And so my parents were like, I don't want her to grow up in this like kind of insecure state where she's going to have to deal with that. So we packed everything in one car that had a German license plate and we drove for like two and a half weeks. And my dad was like, we're not going back to Romania. We're just going to double back and try every country to get stability but by miracle, we put like things in the back seat that looked like we we're going on vacation, and we had a German license plate, and we made it all the way to Portugal. It took them weeks to process our case because they're like, "This is complicated." Um, we lived in an immigrant asylum for a short period of time in uh, Lisbon, and then because of my mom's previous work with the other family in Germany, she got referenced to another family uh, in Portugal. And um, her cousin, that woman's cousin, that was very wealthy, he was looking to build a diesel engine factory for the first time in Portugal. He was a very successful businessman. He would contribute to campaigns on both sides of the elections. so no matter what, he was sort of covered. And he said, I will get you permanent residence here if you can build at a cheaper rate this factory. And my dad said, sure, of course I know diesel engines. He did not. He was an engineer, but he didn't know how to build that. So he just went to the library for a few weeks and made it happen. And But my dad's dream always was to come to America. So mm-hmm. the day we got our permanent residence for Portugal, we also got the visa to come to the U.S. And my dad was like, we're going to pack up in.
0: Did you come straight to Seattle?
1: We did. So then my dad got a job um, at a um, he got a job through Wurzilla Diesel and they said Chicago, Miami or Seattle. So he did some research and he's like, I think Seattle's going to be a little milder for my only daughter. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's how we came to Seattle. Well, I should say Burien, actually, in to Auburn. Burien.
0: Yeah. And so do you remember that like it was yesterday?
1: I remember we came on Thanksgiving Day. So we were very confused why all the businesses were closed. Um, We're like, what's happening right now? It's like dead around here and it's 5 p.m. Um, So we came and um, we actually went within the first 24 hours to uh, English as a second language uh, community college class. And I remember the teacher being like, how long have you guys been here? Um, And she was, you know, people were like 10 years, like there were grandparents of first generation people here. And we're like, 24 hours, (laughs) That's,
0: and, <laughs> that's and did so you great. speak English?
1: I did not. My dad spoke some English, um, and my mom and I had to learn from, from scratch. And
0: so how old were you at this time?
1: So at this point, I was uh, 13.
0: What was the integration like for you? When did you first feel American? Did that that's, happen
1: for you? That's such a cool question. Um, so I was in an ESL class for some time, and then I got um, transferred after I picked up basic English to regular class and then like a honors class or whatever it was called, I don't remember the moment that I honors sp- English, uh, not English, but oh. just like the general classes, yeah. particularly math. So don't stereotype Eastern Europeans. But we are good at math. <laughs> it's great. No, it's um, fantastic. So I don't remember the distinct. Actually, you know what? I think the distinct time where I really sort of stepped into I think everybody wears different masks when I stepped into really being American. I feel was when I went to university. I mm-hmm. got into a sorority. I started socializing a lot. I think that's when I really felt uh, more Americanized than not. Mm-hmm. Um, high school, I think, was sort of a blend, and I just really stayed focused on w- what was next for me.
0: Were you social in high school, or did you feel kind of like an outsider?
1: I always felt like an outsider on the inside. I think, quite frankly, until really I got into recovery. I don't feel like I actually felt confident about who I was mm-hmm. and my, my identity and my talents or anything like that. But... Um, but um
0: Interesting. Yeah. So so you said university you went to your University of Washington. Was that because it was like, Hey, it's a state school, we want you local? Was that a stretch school for you? Or what was your relationship with UW?
1: So what happened was is that my sophomore year of high school, I was pretty good at singles tennis. I went to state, and then I was exercising. So that was my addictive behavior in high school is that I would overexercise. And that's sort of how that lack of belonging and uh, feeling like an outsider was manifesting itself. Mm-hmm. It was this, like, big burning thing in my heart, and I would manifest it through overexercising. So I got tendonitis in both my ankles. So my tennis, sort of any future tennis career, was ruined. I felt unhappy, and I was under this false pretense that changing locations would make me happy. So I graduated high school a year early, and University of Washington, from just a, a family that didn't really know a lot about the school system here, seemed like the best option in the well, state Well, it's a fantastic Washington. school. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think it was too big for me. Freshman mm-hmm. classes were 500 people Yeah, big. I went there
0: too, and I, it, it was just too big. And so it's easy to just kind of get lost for someone like me that— needs kind of um, hands-on learning, it was yes. not that. Yep. Was those big those big lecture halls just did not serve me well.
1: A lot of entrepreneurs, that that type of system doesn't serve them does well. It does not.
0: No, the ADD <laughs> kicks in full gear. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm lost. I'm not falling. Yep. So you studied poli-sci and comparative religion, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Did you think, like, I have a plan with those majors, or that was just what interested you?
1: No, so at that point, um, I just really wanted to find my first job. Um, So despite being extremely academically successful through high school, in college is when I started drinking heavily and started doing drugs. When I was 19, my boyfriend at the time, uh, he told me he loved me. And that night I went home to my parents. And when I came back the next morning, he passed away from a Oxy and alcohol overdose, and that was sort of the traumatic pivot into using more drugs and alcohol. So at that point, I just sort of became very numb, and um, that's when things started mildly escalating. Mm -hmm. I was definitely functional in my first part of my career because I was also a workaholic. Mm -hmm. Um, But go back to this
0: because I'm—I'm actually curious. I have so many angles that I'm coming at this from. Um, One is is that I've been around addiction. And two is that and I'm a mom and I've got a 14-year-old. What is it about certain people's brains that kind of say, oh, drinking is kind of where I stop or maybe weed? And others who say, oh, now I might kind of test out other things. Like, did you just feel invincible? Or, or what drew you to... So Be open to it, I guess. Yeah,
1: substance use disorder is a biopsychosocial chronic illness. For some people, it is more physiological. For some people, it is more trauma-based. But usually there is some combination of the three. Mm-hmm. And then from a brain perspective, your actual decision-making, the decision-making part of your brain does not function like a normal brain. So despite seeing consequences, those are overridden by the decision and the craving that precedes that first use. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so
0: you feel that you, if you looked back, or maybe you know this from treatment, that it was like addiction right away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I now looking back, I know that I've been basically an addict my whole life because first I was over-exercising, I also restricted my eating, and then when I found the liberty to drink and use however I wanted to in college,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that's what it sort of switched over.
0: Mhm. Is it rude or maybe presumptuous to assume that maybe you replaced some of this stuff today with something else?
1: No, so I think what I well what I've replaced it with is balanced um, recovery tools. So yeah. even with work, I take time for myself. Um, I make sure that I'm not, you know, burning the candle at both ends or when I do see it headed that way, I'm pretty conscious about it. I have mm-hmm. a great support network around me. I think everybody Experiences that to some degree because we're human. But I would say there's two factors that when you know that you've stepped over the line, which is like, do you feel shame after whether it's overeating or overexercising or using that substance uh, after that episode? And then are you changing commitments with your friends or loved ones as a result of said behavior? By those two standards is the simplest way to diagnose if someone has a problem, or it's more just your human tendency to, I don't know, eat more chocolate than you wanted to before. Right,
0: right. It is a fine line between understanding it. It's hard to diagnose, I would, I it would think. It is.
1: I mean, there is a self-diagnosis to it, and then also the um, v 5 there's an actual clinical assessment you can take that's comprised of several questions to determine if someone does have substance use disorder and the severity.
0: Oh, interesting. I had never heard of that. Okay. Wow. Okay. So um, let's go back to college for one sec because we're jumping all around and I love doing that. And I think I want to like completely double down on, on your current business, but I want to understand how you got there. So in dub when you're studying and you're thinking maybe poli sci comparative religion, were you thinking maybe you wanted to pursue something specific with those majors? No,
1: I was always like fascinated by humans. Um, So I also read tons of psychology books when I was in college, but didn't want to pursue it as a degree. And political science was just an easier degree to pursue. Comparative religion, I've always been fascinated why people feel the need to be religious and organize religious. Mm -hmm. I'm also fascinated by spirituality and like what that means to people. It was just more of, I need to get through this. And then I, I, at that point, I was starting to think about like businesses and things I wanted to pursue, but mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what that was going to be.
0: I know you had some killer internships, but were you also working and were your parents successful and, and able to pay for college and all that once they got here?
1: Yeah. So my parents are extremely hardworking and they're really good with uh, making financial decisions we are not wealthy, but they were able to pay for my college, which is like a huge blessing. Um, and then I did have a lot of internships. One of my favorite ones was the World Affairs Council. And I also did want to work. I wanted to get work experience. My parents didn't want me to. But I ended up working at Starbucks and Best Buy as a side just because I wanted to have that sense pleasure. of purpose. Yeah. And like I was doing something and I wanted to learn more about business. So in college, uh, against their advice, I, I ended up working at a few mm-hmm. places.
0: So you're working, you're in a sorority, you're going to school, sounds like you're getting good grades. And you're also during all of this drinking and maybe kind of a little out of control beyond what looking back maybe you would have wanted.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, my grades definitely start suffering as a result um, in a big, big way. And at that point, I just wanted to get over with college and I just wanted to move on to the next thing and see what the world had. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started um, or I started partnering with a friend of mine who's actually also in tech now, funny enough. But we started promoting nightclubs and like booking DJs on in Seattle, in Seattle. So Thursday through like s- Saturday, Sunday. So we worked with like Sea sound Lounge and Trinity Nightclub and. Venom, back when it was Venom, like all of these nightclubs, and um, I did—I got table service for this group of people one night. And one of them happened to be a tech recruiter at a company that needed help getting into enterprise accounts. And he said, "Hey, you seem like a people person. You should come interview." <laughs> That's how for this everyone job. gets into recruiting. Yeah, <laughs> like that was my by start. By partying?
0: <laughs> no. Well, just by meeting someone and then being like, "Hey," I mean, it's not like you go to college to be a recruiter. No, in recruiting. You And don't. so, how do you become in it? You either read about it, or a friend is in it, or someone kind of like "quote unquote" discovers you, like, "Hey, <laughs> you, you want to come? You seem good with people." So you went and did that and crushed it. But it wasn't your lifelong kind of dream job. And so did, when did you realize, like, I have the entrepreneurial bug?
1: Yeah. So I would say that I, I was dating someone um, and he was DJing for fun on the side. And so I remember one night just like looking at his audio editing uh, program and I had this inspiration that I started obsessing over, which was like taking the visual waveform of your favorite sound and I thought, how cool would it be to take that and turn it into an actual painting of your favorite sound? So DJs and producers could get their hit songs, um, you know, expecting parents could get paintings of their baby's heartbeat or newlyweds could get paintings of them saying, I love you to each other. And I was like obsessing over it. I also knew. So in high school, another thing that I did is I modeled for a short stint and did pageants and I'd spent a summer in LA in high school. Uh, to do some acting classes and some modeling gigs. And for some reason, I just felt super connected to Los Angeles and like I I'd, uh, I'd also obsessed over moving down there. So I ended up taking a different recruiting job to just get my bearings around Los Angeles. and within like, I think it was like six or nine months, I decided to start this business. And through a really odd series of events, I ended up meeting my co-founder.
0: What does it mean when you say, um, create art through music.
1: Yeah, so basically in audio editing programs you see the waveform of mm-hmm. your favorite sound and then we would extract that and make it really large mm-hmm. and put it over a canvas and then she would trace it, my co founder would, and then actually paint it the oh, colors I of your love choice.
0: It. Can I get one of these?
1: I can connect you to her. She'll make one for you. <laughs> I think
0: it sounds really cool. <laughs> I love that. So she's still got she doesn't,
1: she doesn't do the waveforms anymore, so actually what's lovely about this friendship, this sisterhood that I have with her, is that she helped me realize I needed to get into recovery. This business helped her restart painting, and now she's actually a full-on... Um, Painter, she does pop art, and she just released her first solo big art exhibit in Los Angeles just a week and a half ago.
0: I definitely need to get her info. I love art. Yes. Um, that's amazing. Okay, so you had this business for a little while, and then, um, and then what else were you doing in LA? And did you think you were going to stay there?
1: Yeah, I wanted to stay in LA. We were doing the business um, because part of our market was in the music industry. It was a very excuse to party a lot and go out do all of those things. And there just came a point where she approached me in the most loving way. And she was like, hey, this is starting to affect our business negatively. And I think you need to get help because I care about you. You know, you need to get help and I'm going to move out. And that was sort of the moment uh, that she approached me in such a loving, unconditionally Mm -hmm. loving way that it allowed me to hear her. She was the only one that approached me in such a positive way about it. Of had like, other people you. approached
0: you and kind of tried to intervene?
1: Yeah, people that I've dated um, had tried to approach me. Also, like my parents were certainly worried about me, but they didn't know how to deal with it. And I don't think they knew the depth of what was going on either mm-hmm. um, because we were all so geographically apart. Um, but when, I, when she told me that and set up those boundaries, uh, that's when I really realized I had a problem um Mm
0: -hmm. and so what did you do about it
1: well actually for a short time it got much worse because then i was alone uh but then finally you know i made some really poor financial decisions i called my parents and i said hey i think i need help with drinking i didn't realize the magnitude of my addiction but i knew something was wrong and i didn't Mm -hmm. know anything about substance use disorder at the time
0: i think people who haven't had exposure firsthand have a picture in their mind and so what's the most common misperception when you say I was like over drinking they're probably picturing brown paper bag, like out of the movies.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a progression to it, right? So by but the But at its
0: worst when you're like I was a mess. Like... Yeah.
1: I mean at its worst I would disappear for a week and I would be on six different substances and like drinking vodka in the morning and doing like an eight ball every two, three days. I mean it was it was, um I wouldn't know where I was like waking up. I mean it was definitely uh what people, when they see me today, would not picture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had a lot of people say that to me. Um, Well, even
0: just the way you look. I know it sounds ridiculous, but just bright-eyed and clear-skinned and fresh you have like a very fresh look to you and I feel like when people are partying a lot they look old and a little <laughs> weathered you know
1: my mom did tell me when I got out of the 28-day program at Lakeside Mile and she's like you look 10 years younger yeah so, I mean it just ages you I think you know the human body and brain has an amazing way of recovering mm-hmm. like it is really really fascinating
0: yeah wow I have so many things I want to talk to you about I mean you, you've had this entrepreneurial stuff and it seems like that's kind of a thing throughout your career um what fuels you to want to work for yourself? Is it like, hey, I don't make a good employee or I just want to just go and not be told how to do it? Or I like the risk factor. Like, what is it about being an entrepreneur?
1: I don't think I have a choice. Like, I don't feel like it was my, not in a bad way. I don't, in a positive way, I don't feel like I have a choice. Like, I literally can't think of doing something else. And I feel like, I got pushed into it by my circumstances and this drive that I have inside me that I didn't assign to myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I literally cannot picture doing anything different. Um, You mean
0: as far as being an entrepreneur or doing this specific business you're doing right now?
1: Well, actually both. um, But... Just specific, just really more broadly, even being an entrepreneur, like I don't mm-hmm. think that I could do anything else. Yeah. I feel like this is what I was built for. And this is if I look at every personal and professional experience, like looking back, you know how people say that the dots connect when you're looking back. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like every experience is applicable to what makes our team successful today and like what's helping us grow. Mm -hmm.
0: So tell our listeners about your business today because we haven't even gotten into it. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool. I originally met you because I heard you speak and tell your story. And I was so blown away by, A, your bravery, but just your story. I'm like, this is one of those like, duh, businesses.
1: Yeah, so it's a two-part platform. There's a mobile application that individuals in recovery leverage to be able to keep Accountable to all of their recovery activities, depending on what that is, is up to them. When they check into an activity like therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. it actually pings the GPS that you were there at the right time. And in return for that, people get rewards like Amazon gift cards, which is all grounded in science. It's actually more successful to give positive reinforcement through rewards. Uh, for substance use disorder to keep people in recovery, than cognitive behavioral therapy, statistically, and so. And then we built an algorithm on top that can tell your risk level of relapse based on your behavior in the app, which clinicians can look at in a dashboard, and they can see who's at risk and support them before an overdose or an emergency room stays stay happens. So, today we uh, sell our platform to health plans, behavioral health managed care organizations, and then we implement. At the provider sites like hospitals and treatment centers and so on, so the patient actually gets the app for free.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you said um, I heard you say a couple sentences ago Lake Lake Ridge or Lakeside
1: Lakeside Mylum. Lakeside Mylum. That's Myelum. where I went.
0: <laughs> okay, so Lakeside Mylum. So give like walk me through a prime example of there. Are they on the app? Lakeside
1: Milam actually is not a customer. Well, we have (laughs) it. hello,
0: Lakeside Milam. Get on it. Okay, so let's just use them as an example, though. Let's pretend you're you and this doesn't exist back then because you created it. But so you get out and what you need most is a sponsor when you get out. Mm -hmm. And then what about all the people that you're in rehab with that you bond with? Is there also accountability to your, not just your sponsor, but your graduates, I guess. I
1: love that you asked that. So we have peer recovery support specialists that are certified that can communicate with you through the app. We actually tested it, making it more open with your peers Mm -hmm. um, in the first version of the app. But um, we actually right now are reevaluating how we do the community aspect because we want to make sure this is really a tool to keep people accountable. And when we integrate the social piece of it, Sometimes it can actually get tricky. Uh, well, well a- my
0: experience of it is, it's, is knowing friends in it, they've actually gone and used with people that they've met in recovery. Exactly. And it can be actually a trigger of, like, camaraderie. Yes. Like, a, let's do this together. So- uh, people that... Want to take each other down?
1: Yep. So that's why we don't have that element today. But basically, your clinicians, your peer recovery support specialists that are certified, can communicate with you through the app. And then we are evaluating for next year what community is going to look like mm-hmm. to make sure that it is healthy interactions and that it doesn't doesn't create a detriment to keeping you accountable to what's most important.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you can you message people? privately in the app?
1: Yes. So there's a private HIPAA compliant messaging platform, and that's where you can message your clinician, your therapist, or your peer recovery support Or your specialist. peer recovery.
0: Okay. And so is the only way that a recovering addict could find out about you today is if they went through recovery and, and their recovery center was on the app?
1: Uh, so either recovery center or that health plan, health insurance company that they're working with. Um, now that we're really growing in that space. And once we implement with a sufficient amount of insurance companies, we are going to be evaluating uh, what consumer, direct-to-consumer might look like. Mm-hmm. But what's important for us is that the person understands what tools they need to leverage to stay accountable to in the app. And so this model of implementing it through the different stakeholders that we're working with really assures that the person is in a place where they really just need support to stay accountable to whatever their recovery plan is.
0: Okay. So you came up with the idea when you were in recovery. Yes. And so were you like mapping it out and who's your co-founder and, and who funded it?
1: Yeah. So um, I journaled about this idea because in my third week at Lakeside Milam because I noticed clinicians were amazing. I really bonded with my counselors, but they were doing things like texting and calling and looking at a signed paper slips to see if people were staying accountable to their recovery plan. I also learned that 80% of people relapse before in the first year of recovery, and that out of the 22 million people seeking recovery every year, only 3.1 million even get into an inpatient treatment center. So I journaled about it in my third week of um, treatment because I thought about how technology could bridge your accountability to your care plan and your connection to your care team. So when I got out, I went into sober living, outpatient. I did everything that they told me. I got a sponsor. And... Is that your
0: same sponsor today?
1: No. <laughs> it's been five years. Is
0: that common, though, that people stay with a sponsor for a long time?
1: I don't have the statistics on that. Some people stay for a long time. Right, I, guess I, I have so many
0: questions around it because I'm just curious. Is there a way to find a sponsor through the app?
1: Um, There's no way to find a sponsor through the app because it goes back to making sure that there's quality control and Mm. that's appropriate. And that's not really we don't dictate what you should do for your recovery. We're merely a framework to help you keep accountable to what you're choosing to do. You can uh, get credit for your rewards for meeting with your sponsor. Like that's one of the activities you can Mm -hmm. schedule in there. Um, But in terms of how to find, quote unquote, the right person to help you, everybody has different philosophies. For me, I just wanted to find someone to get me through the steps because that's what matters. The relationship you're building through yourself—they're just a conduit and a vehicle getting you through. Mm-hmm. I think then after that, when you're in recovery for some time, then you can figure out what, what works what for you. you. Need, yeah. It's different for everybody.
0: Everyone's different, yeah. And so, um, so three weeks in, you're mapping this out, and then how did you know how to go about finding funding, and where did you start?
1: Yeah, so after that, I took a job at a mobile engineering company during the day. I was in a lot of financial debt, so I couldn't afford not to have a full-time job. And I did tell the CEO of that company, I'm working on this side project. And he said, that's totally fine. Just when it gets to be more and interfere with the full-time job, just let me know. So after that, I, for about 10, 11 months, um, I started working basically wireframing it. And I went to a startup weekend where I tested the idea. We actually tested it out as a wearable. And within the first 90 days of recovery, I applied to a contest that led me to Richard Branson's Island. It's so
0: ironic (laughs) of all people, right? Since your dad raised you to really...
1: And on top of that, what's crazy is somebody from Lakeside Milam that I was in there with, Uh, we had, we were writing and answering questions Mm -hmm. in one of the sessions. And um, and I had actually had written like the question was what is what is your dream if like addiction didn't affect you or something, and I said I'd want to be the first female Richard Branson. (sighs) And after I met him, I have chills. After I met him, he actually he had kept this piece of paper that we'd exchange, and he sent me a picture of it on Facebook. He's like, "Do you remember when you said this?" Like, because I really didn't think what my future was going to hold. I just knew I wanted to stay sober. I did not know what career was going to come after. You're just
0: in the one day at a time mode. Yeah,
1: completely. And so I win this contest, get to Richard Branson's Island. I see an extremely charismatic... What was the contest? It was to submit your top three bucket list items. And based on creativity, they were going to choose a winner. So my top three items were to be on a private jet during New Year's Eve over different time zones, to go to a developing country during a natural disaster to volunteer, and then third was to live for a year on the world ship. It's like this big cruise ship with a hundred condo units on it that just travels around the world. So those are okay, my. Okay, so when this
0: company like i S, I'll, I'll go with you.
1: Yes, please And we'll come. eat
0: Romanian food. There well, you go. We have a lot of planning to do. <laughs> um, was I also read um through that that you the thing where you wrote like um about trusting your the universe cleaning mm-hmm. house I loved all of it like even if somebody's not trying to get sober mm-hmm. this is just all relevant and then kind of paying it forward and helping others yep tell me more about that
1: I mean that is definitely some of the recovery principles that I've learned I've applied to all areas of my life and including build, building our company culture and my co-founder who I inadvertently ended up meeting uh through that Richard Branson trip Murphy Jensen he was a French Open uh, winner in 1993 in tennis, and he um, is in long-term recovery. We always talk about how it's important to basically do an honest assessment of where you're at, uh, making the changes you need to make, and then just focus on helping other people. That's a lot of the recovery principles that we learn, but it really works in all areas of your life.
0: The part that really struck me the most was the cleaning house. And that could mean different things for different people. But I read that you kind of took a digital detox, which I think everybody could use. Um, I'm sure I'm pretty addicted to my (laughs) handheld device and social media. What were you thinking when you said clean house?
1: Well, at that time, it was more like getting really clear about things that had happened in my addiction that I had shame and guilt about. Today, what cleaning house has to do with is actually... Um, my emotional energy and state. So I have a meditation where I sort of picture um, where have I picked up other people's energy or where am I being irrationally, you know, emotional about something that I can't control and then like process that out. Um, and I do do digital detoxes a couple times a year. Catalina Island is one of my favorite places to turn my phone off. I think that's really important because a lot of times what comes out of that is I actually end up solving some big, huge business challenge by just like stepping away from everything and getting clear.
0: Yeah. So how many years into this business are you now?
1: So we got our first round of funding in January of 2016, OK, so, about four years. so
0: January 2016. And how much did you raise? How, how much have you raised so far?
1: We've raised over 11 million dollars in shit, um, was... in equity and then also uh, con- safe notes, convertible notes.
0: Wow. And did you have to learn about that? I mean, are you the type who just like read a few books or who educated you on?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I always ask people questions. Um, I'd raise money for Soundstrokes art before um and also my co-founder Murphy he has incredible relationships with people that not only have the capability to invest but their hearts are in the right place Um, and he's just incredible at building and fostering those relationships um and then for me I just know the business inside out and I know technology so I'm very comfortable pitching also in that first 11 months where I was trying to find co-founders and finding that first investor I went to a ton of pitch contest events, not because the prize money is ever meaningful, because it's usually not, As is practice, uh, but it was just practice and mm-hmm. it was getting through the hurdles and making the pitch better. So when we actually came to pitching the serious investors that we knew had the capital to drive us forward, then I'd already gotten through the practice. But honestly, funny enough, I also think doing pageants prepared me for pitching because
0: well, it just that just how to carry yourself.
1: Yeah. Carry yourself and get through that stage fright and just kind of, you know, getting through all of your insecurities.
0: Yeah. Um, and so where are you now with the business? How many employees do you have? And, and you talked about culture. Do you have core values?
1: Yeah. So um, we are at 30 full-time employees um, and we are expanding that right now. Uh, in terms of culture and values, we actually hire, uh, fire review based on our values. We also have an appreciation award that people get voted on based on exhibiting the values. And the acronym is TIGER. And it's trustworthy, impactful, empowering, uh, grit, uh, exceptional, and rapid.
0: I like it. I like all of it. (laughs) It's hard to come up with. And I think that it's important to kind of review every Mm -hmm. what year or something, just to make sure that like we're all, and especially because at 30, People, it might feel a little different than when you get to 100 people, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. So the business model is that they pay you like a monthly. So it a, depends per user
1: with with health plans. They either pay you for the entire health plan population per member per month, knowing that only a percentage jump on the app, but they want to provide that as an open benefit, or what's called value based care, which is that they pay you a flat fee on a monthly basis, but then you based on the cost savings that you. Uh, provide as a result of this app by people avoiding things like emergency room stays and inpatient stays, but increasing utilization of things like doctor appointments, then you can participate in that cost savings. So those are the two typical models that health plans or behavioral health MCOs will compensate you. So right now what we're looking at is just expanding in that particular channel. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, there's a couple different things that I'm really passionate about. One is the data that we're aggregating is incredible. And there's a, such a lack of data in this space. So what I'd like to get to is seeing how with this aggregated data, we can say if, I don't know, some guy named Billy in Wisconsin is 24 years old, male, and is suffering from heroin addiction. Well, we've already seen a thousand other Billies on our platform. And we can actually infer with machine learning and AI of what is the exact treatment plan that works for him. Wow. Um, so that's one of the things I'm really um, passionate about. The other one is obviously we're evaluating and considering what other ways can we reach the greatest amount of people. Right now, we do work with Medicaid patients, people experiencing homelessness, as well as like more commercial populations. And then beyond that, I think there's a lot of limitless possibilities uh, depending what route we take. But yeah. the way do you feel
0: like you want to stay in recovery, or that you could apply this to like you brought up diabetes? That like, hey, reminder, take your insulin.
1: It can, so it could get broadened out to post cancer, yeah. I was going to say cancer, anything. Um, but right now, eating disorder, anything. Yes, right now it's too early to tell, so we'll see what happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so, um, are you going to be raising another round?
1: We are evaluating that right now. Um, We're looking at likely raising a Series B, and so we're actually going on a board an executive retreat next week to evaluate um, what we would be spending those funds on and what our strategy is.
0: What's keeping you up at night? Because all, all of us as entrepreneurs have oh, things so that we So many we're, things. <laughs> or what would you say like if you could just like wave a magic wand and solve X? What would you want me to solve for you?
1: I think the, the biggest thing that this is not a secret for any healthcare startup that is working with large companies like health insurance plans I think there's like a language barrier between the two. We're very blessed because we have people that have worked in health plans that are on our team and we have an incredible set of advisors. And also the people that we're working with at these health plans are actually quite amazing um, partners to work with. But I think a lot of times the two sides, an innovation company and a huge large health system or insurance company, they speak slightly different languages. So I think just making sure that we are translating our results and everything like that in the proper way, and also just scaling. So, the ability to onboard millions of people, but also spending enough time on each person to make sure that they understand the app and how to use it the best. Mm-hmm. That's something that we just stepped into over the last few months, and my team's done an amazing job of setting us up for success. But until we actually execute on those millions of people, there's going to be a lot that. We just don't know right now that yeah. we're going to find out.
0: And so, how do, I know that you're crazy busy. So, how are you spending your time? Like, what's a typical day?
1: My focus right now is enterprise sales and supporting that side of the house. Um, also, continuing to forge relationships with investors. And um, thinking and managing strategy. And then, of course, most of all, the most important job of CEO is making sure that his, enti- his or her entire team has what they need and they're unblocked. So my day typically consists of a lot of meetings um, from very early. And then I do have a fitness and business trainer that I work with. Um, I also enjoy um, as a therapeutic practice um DJing and I'm learning how to produce music. And of course, my recovery, which is meditating and still going to 12-step meetings and therapy.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's the fitness and business trainer that you're talking about?
1: His name is Titus and it's Heroics Training just over on the Whole Foods on 8th and Denny. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working with him for five and a half years and he's incredible.
0: So he did, when you say fitness and business, he's training you on...
1: So he coaches both. So basically, it's called strength and movement training. And for example, when you're working out and they're 40-minute workouts, he'll draw life lessons out of the way you work out. So I remember five and a half years ago, he was like, when I was just starting my recovery journey, he was like, you know, I observed something. He's like, when you start an exercise, you go way high energy at the beginning. And then at the end, you kind of have a little bit of a sloppy ending there. He's like, how does this apply to projects that you do do you lose interest in projects towards the Sounds end like
0: me this is so funny and
1: anyway so he kind of draws those lessons out and it's pretty incredible and then there's been moments of hey i'm preparing for a really big negotiation and i really need to some grounding help and he'll meditate with me and talk me through what is that person's motivation how can you take care of yourself in this meeting so he's kind of like yoda basically wow <laughs>
0: I feel like that's a, like a godsend for you. That's mm-hmm. amazing to find him. Yes. That's very, very cool. I'll and give so, you his number after I, this. Do <laughs> so you know I need it. I know that through your recovery, you had to kind of really double down and learn about, um, you talked about shame and fear, um, and I guess what your weaknesses are, your blind spots. Are you clear on those, and are they like not fixed, quote unquote, but do they just keep popping up, or do you find new ones
1: as you go
0: into new phases of life?
1: That's interesting. So I definitely, through my recovery, have forgiven myself and also just things that have happened, obviously traumatic events that have happened as a result of my substance use disorder. So I don't I don't believe that shame is a big part of my story anymore or guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but fears, I mean, I deal with fears every single day. Um, but luckily, I have a process through my tools in recovery to process those and not let those handicap me. Um, I think of uh, you know every human especially every business owner has certain fears and there's been moments too which I don't think a lot of business owners talk about because they feel maybe shame around this part of it but it's like there's definitely been days where I've been like it's called a struggle uh, in one of the entrepreneurial books that I read the hard things about hard things and it's like there's some days where I'm like why am I doing this like am I the right person to drive this forward but I think what's important to call out is that everybody has these thoughts What's important is what you do after that thought. Do you keep going or do you just hide away? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you talk to someone about those to process them so you get in a better mental headspace? You Mm -hmm. know, you have to practice that mental athleticism to get through those thoughts. I don't think anybody is immune to those.
0: Right. What's resonating for me in, in just hearing that right now is I'm thinking sometimes I'm in my ego head you know, or, my, or it, you're too much in your thinking head or feeling head. And mm-hmm. it's like balancing those, I think, is the hard part sometimes. Yeah. Um, also, for someone in recovery, I think that one of the complicated messages sometimes can be that you're getting a message of like, okay, you need to feel empowered, but you're also supposed to be um, taking like some sort of admission of being powerless. And so how do those things kind of intersect for you?
1: Yeah, so that... Is a really good question. I think a lot of people not in recovery uh, is hard to understand that concept. Um, So, powerless doesn't actually mean in the traditional way that you're helpless. I think a lot of people think that powerless means helpless. To me, what powerless in the context of recovery literature means is that you're actually recognizing. And not under the delusion that you control everything around you. So you are trusting uh, the process and you're doing the work one step at a time and you're taking action on what towards your goals. But you're letting also go of outcomes and the things that you can't control. And through that process, you actually gain and you are empowered, which is very different than Mm -hmm. having power.
0: I love that. I love that you I could talk to you all day long like there's so much to learn and I'm going to make you come back on for sure (laughs) you have to after our um where are we going we're going on the everywhere I I, I want to be on the I want to be on the private jet too. (laughs) count me on that one and the workouts (laughs) after we eat um okay so my ultimate question for you um really is what fuels you like ultimately
1: so when I got first got into recovery I'd always, as you know, been motivated and I pushed myself and pushing through the world to accomplish things. But when I got into recovery, for the first time in my life, I felt actual sense of peace and joy. And through technology, if it's built the right way, I believe that we do today and will continue to lengthen those periods of joy and peace through our technology by helping people stay accountable to their recovery plans. And that's what fuels me. In Slack, we have a customer feedback channel, and I turn that, that channel Every single day, especially through hard times, because it is so inspiring to see how people are responding to our app and how this is making a difference for them.
0: That's incredible. And if people want to work with you, um, do they have to be in, rec- have been through recovery or have Absolutely some sort of not. connection to <laughs> understanding it or obviously some empathy and passion? But
1: I would say, I mean, definitely empathy and passion, obviously, Um, but otherwise, no, I mean, the majority of the people that work at the company are not in long-term recovery. Um, I would say it's probably around 20% at this point that are, and yeah, we're made up of scientists and technologists and business people and all of it. Um, but it is not a requirement to be in recovery. You can find us at weconnectrecovery.com.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast.